Welcome to this episode of Women to Women podcast series. Our guest today, Laura Kesselich. Laura is associated with Sussman Godfrey. She litigates high-stakes commercial disputes in various complex legal areas. Before law school, Laura worked as a senior policy advisor for the Office of Prisoner Reentry in Newark, New Jersey, where she won and managed more than 7 million in federal and private grants. When not working, Laura enjoys spending time with her husband and sons, William and Bennett. Hi Laura, welcome to Women to Women podcast. So excited to have you with us here today. Divya, I'm so excited to be here too and to have the opportunity to speak about my experience. I appreciate you providing this opportunity to me. You had such great thoughts and advice the last time we spoke, so I'm really looking forward to this discussion. Thank you. Yes, me too. So let's start from your childhood. So how was your childhood? Where did you grow up? Uh, what did you want to be? Yes, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area in San Bruno, California, um, which is known as the airport town on the peninsula for SFO. My parents both grew up in Croatia on small islands off of the northern coast of Croatia, and they came to the United States in the 1970s. At first they went and visited family in New York and then ended up coming to San Francisco to uh meet the person that sponsored them and fell in love with the Bay Area and and that's where we ended up growing up that's where I grew up surrounded by a community of people Croatian people you know my parents by coming to the United States they just wanted my sister and I to have a comfortable life and to enjoy you know all the privileges that come with being in the United States and um by virtue of being in silicon valley in high school i we had a connection to a program um that trained students in biotechnology and how to do you know how to put dna in agar and keep a notebook uh, and i remember just loving um i would go to those classes after um, my high school classes and i just loved doing that and and that's actually what i thought i was going to do for my career and it turns out my path went a completely different way once i got to college but certainly biotechnology was in the front of my mind um throughout law school or throughout high school yes so were there people who really shaped your life apart from your parents clearly immigrant parents are hard working they instilled those values in you so who else was around that really helped you become who you are today Yes, so my parents, but I mentioned this community of of Croatian people, um my aunt and uncle lived right down the street from us and you know, my parents made a habit of getting together with them every other week for coffee in the evenings and um and so just having this really strong family bond while I was growing up was very important to me because no matter what was going on you know we would have coffee on Thursdays and I'd be able to play with my cousins and you know I knew that that was the kind of family and the life that I wanted to build that was very much a community supporting one another but my parents did not graduate from high school they didn't have sort of the educational background to be able to an experience in the United States to be able to kind of envision a path of what might happen to me after law school or after high school excuse me and going into college you know that just wasn't part of their knowledge base you know when when the time came to pursue higher education i was looking to uh, you know high school counselors you know any information that we could find and i actually Uh, struggled quite a bit with that initial um 
with that initial foray into higher education, trying to find reliable information. We ended up seeking out some information from people who were charging for it. So they, uh, we went to a local embassy suites. I remember um, they were promising to get us some money for, for college. And my parents, you know, it was a tough decision, but ended up paying $1,000 um, to try and get some information about colleges and scholarships. And it turned out that the information they provided was all publicly available from our school. And, you know, we didn't have to pay for it. And um, it was just people kind of um, being a little bit predatory, being predatory and trying to get money from, from families who, you know, wanted to send their kids to higher education, but didn't have the means. And so we stumbled around, you know, for a long time. And um, after, after college, I ended up working at, at the guidance of my professor who suggested that I go work for the city of Newark. And um, there is where I met people who guided me toward law school, which is what I ultimately ended up pursuing and who thought I could be good at it and kind of knew, knew how to apply and knew who to talk to, to get recommendations and knew what schools to go to. And they pointed me in the right direction. Um, I'm particularly thinking of Ingrid Johnson, who she's still practicing as a lawyer, who then was the director of prisoner reentry in Newark and who saw me as uh, someone who could do really well in the law and encouraged me to apply and go to school. That's incredible. Sometimes mentors see things in you, the potential in you that we don't realize that we have. Did you ever like seek out mentors or did it happen naturally over time? I think for, for Ingrid and I, it happened naturally over time. And it, that office that we worked in was in Newark was such a beautiful place. It was Ingrid and I were both paid by the Manhattan Institute, which is a, a think tank in New York. Um, we were paid to come in and, um, and apply for federal grants and help the city of Newark kind of connect an existing prisoner reentry system together so that people coming home from prisons and, and local jails would have some resources to be able to find jobs find housing. Uh, food and and clothing, um, so we connected this reentry program together. But there were also, you know, native Newarkers there, people who had been to, uh, you know, prison and before, who, you know, were there kind of, and we were all a team. Like, and our work was informed by what they had experienced. You know, they were learning from what we knew about other programs that had su succeeded in different parts of the country, and it was a beautiful and dynamic team. And I think Ingrid and I found each other in that space um, because we were trying to do a lot and we're really stretching, you know, what we had done before. So I was grateful to to have found her and um, to build a relationship sort of organically like that. And other mentors, I, you know, in law school, I I would I tried to seek out mentors who I was inspired by, people who were doing work that was really exciting. And I often found it awkward. I don't know if it's just because, you know, I'm a first generation professional. I found it strange to go up to a professor and ask them, hey, would you be my mentor? I thought, you know, I'd have to read everything that that professor wrote, right? And, and to be having a conversation about their academic work before I approached them about anything. And, you know, I think later on in my law school career, I learned that 
no, it didn't, you know, it didn't have to be so formal. You know, you could just go in and, and talk and tell the professor what you'd like to do, hear what they're interested in, hear what their problems are, and really led to be more, you know, much more informal, more person to person. Yeah, so I ended up making a few mentors that way. And my professor, Bertrand Ross, I remember playing on the same softball team with him at Berkeley Law um, after you know a little while. And so, yeah, so over time, you realize that people are, you know, every, professors are people and, and, you know, people further along in their career, they may be intimidating initially, but there are people too, you know, who who have their own interests and um, things that they want to talk about, and and you just being a person wanting to get to know someone can be the great start to a mentoring relationship. That's great advice, and you know this holds completely true as the first and the foremost principle of networking, right? We hesitate because we just don't want to approach strangers or people that we really don't know well. But if you never talk to them, you'll never know them well. That's exactly it. Exactly it. And, and, um, you know, I think part of it, I was just so hesitant to do that because I figured, oh, someone who has more, you know, who has lawyers in their family or who has other professionals in their family will know how to talk to people who are professionals. We'll know how to talk to professors. You know, those folks have a leg up. And when I go in, they're going to see me as someone who doesn't have that in my background. And they'll know right away that I don't know what I'm talking about. You know, something like this. And it, and it's just like, that's not the case. You know, that's not the case. Um, we can build relationships just by being who we are. Um, and that's important. I hope that, you know, people listening can understand that. Um, as they're building their own networks. So if you had to go back and change something, what would that be and why? I've been thinking about this since our first conversation, Divya. And what I would change is starting to build friendships earlier on and prioritizing building friendships. I th- I'll take my I'll just speak about my law school experience, you know, going into law school as a first year, I was living part-time with my parents in San Bruno and commuting to Berkeley to try to save money. And um, at that point, my law degree was my second professional degree. I had a, a master's degree prior. And I put, I think, so much pressure on the academics of law school and, and getting the awards, I guess, that come with being a law student that signal, yes, you're doing this correctly. Like, yes, you're being a good lawyer and you can be a good lawyer. These are the, these are the awards that you won to, to show that. And I regret all the pressure I put on because I think what I would have done differently is tried to build closer relationships with my law school classmates. And, um, you know, I, I did the best I could. I talked about already with my professors, but the law school, my law school classmates, those are people who will be practicing law with me, you know, for my whole career. And, you know, we can support one another and um, learn from one another. And I'm, I'm just thankful for, you know, the people that I did meet in law school. We, there's a group of women, we call ourselves the back row because we sat together in the in the back row of our uh, uh, reproductive rights class. And we all supported one another. We were on law review. And, you know, I, I cherish those relationships very much. And, you know, we built those uh, later on in law school. 
and just the uh, this idea that you know these are relationships that can be built anyone in your class with you know with people and you don't have to you know you don't have to keep your head down and just do the work the relationship building is just as important is what I'm trying to say and and that's the one thing that I, I wish I would have done differently earlier on in my career and I'm taking active steps to do that now and to build close relationships with my colleagues at the law firm. So you have two very young children. I do. I do. How do you manage? A career in law is not something that's easy, very demanding, very hectic. So how do you balance? Yes. When I had my first son, we were in the middle of the pandemic when I had my son, William, who's now three years old. And the answer to that question during that period of time was different than my answer now. You know, then it was just sort of trying to piece together the childcare and trying to, you know, keep both afloat. It was very much a survival mentality, right? And now coming back with my second son and just realizing all of the resources that are actually available to me as a mom, there are incredible resources out there. And, you know, I'd I found myself getting stuck in the pandemic mindset for a little while, like, oh, we we can manage, you know, with me and my husband kind of trading off with the kids, right? Like, we can manage that. We did that for a few years. It took me a while to realize, no, I actually don't have to do that anymore. Like, We can hire help. We can ask our, you know, friends for help. We can ask our parents for help. We can, you know, get help on inter- non-traditional hours. So, weekends and evenings and in order to be able to do that and and by doing that you know I feel like so liberated in my work because I have the time to be able to do what I love and you know and to do it well and my husband you know he's a he works for himself and he has the liberty to be able to accept work that he loves and does and so I guess my answer, my short answer is like just prioritizing getting resources in to help the situation and don't try to do everything all by yourself or all at once. Hire the nannies, hire the childcare um, to the extent you can afford it, you know, hire the help and try to get as much time as you need to do your work. That's how we've been able to balance it. So what brings you joy? (laughs) so so many things so many things um you know I've spent the past you know several months trying to reconnect um with people from law school and from college and even high school and going back and talking to talking to my friends and remembering all of these things that we used to do and and love and and I've been talking to them about their careers and and what they're working on now and I'm so happy to do that. And it brings me a lot of joy to have a career now where I have the skills to be able to help people with what they're working on and to come in and be able to do that in a very competent way. I'm like super, super thankful for that. And then my kids, like just when they come home from school and they run up the stairs or William Bennett's not running up the stairs yet, but, and I'm just like, William, and I get so excited to see them. Like they are, they're really growing and learning so much. And 
like what I see in them is like a future that is like very kind and thoughtful and energetic. They bring so much light to everything I do. I'm very grateful to have them and um, to have the opportunity to be their mom. So the, those are those are the things that really do bring me joy. And then I personally have taken up gardening since the pandemic. And I love to see, I love to garden. I love to see those little green sprouts coming out. That That's all just like, just fun. So yeah, those are, those are the three main things. I just read somewhere, you know, appreciation for nature has gone up after COVID, I guess, because we are outdoors more often than we were before. So that's great. Yeah. Yeah. And we're, you know, we live in El Segundo and there's so much beautiful environment there to be by the beach and all these parks. And it's just so nice to get outdoors. It, it really refreshes your whole mindset. Absolutely. Along the way, did you ever have naysayers and how did you deal with them? You know, I, I will give you a very honest answer and, um, and it may not be the answer you're expecting. So um, my parents uh, being um, immigrant parents, I think, like I mentioned early on, the thing that they wanted the most from us is to be very comfortable in our life. And I think my parents, when they saw how much I was struggling um, not struggling, but just how hard I was working, particularly in law school when I was living with them. I think they were hesitant about it and questioning it because, you know, in, in law school, I was so I was so invigorated by everything going on there. I ended up doing, I was the editor-in-chief of the law review. I did um, moot court and participated in a number of competitions, teaching assistant, kind of you know, I did a lot of things and I'd be working pretty late at night. And I think my parents were very concerned with what that meant for my legal career moving forward. And so I don't know if naysayers is the right thing. They were just, you know, concerned. And I appreciate that, you know, I think there is um, first generation students are vulnerable to overworking, right? Because we feel like we need to um, kind of prove ourselves so I, I accept that. I accept that. And uh, in my career now, I've really tried to be very conscious about the balance. I think that's how I see um, those words of caution from my parents, you know, be, be very intentional about the work that you take on and make sure to carve out enough time for your family and friends and for sleep and um, just always have that in your mind. You know, the balance may not always be 100%, you know, where you want it to be, but if you're moving toward that goal, um, that's important. So I don't, I didn't let their kind of concern uh, stop me, <laughs> but I, I always have it in the front of my mind as something that I do need to, you know, be concerned about essentially. So we want to be perfectionist at everything we do, right? We want to be the best mom, the best career person that can be the best neighbor, everything the best. And sometimes we put so much pressure on ourselves. Are there certain things that you have seen in your life, whether yourself or other women around you, that we need to kind of, you know, change our mindset and say, hey, it's okay not to be perfectionist. You know, it's okay to let a few things go or slide by. What would some of those things be? Mm -hmm. Yes, for me, I've grappled with this the most in terms of my my work and my writing, writing in particular. I always want that first draft to be perfect. And, you know, I will 
struggle with myself, right? I'll go back and forth about, you know, what I want this um, introduction to say, you know, what points I want to emphasize. And I've learned that sometimes in the drafting process, it helps a lot to just get feedback from other people about what you're trying to do. And, you know, that might mean that the first draft is not the perfect end all be all draft, right? It is a draft that you're circulating and it, you know, to the extent you have time and other people have time, like you need to be open to what other people are going to say about this, the piece that you've created. And you need to recognize that it's going to grow and develop as other people have input into it. And so, I mean, that that's, that's what I've learned. And I guess to broaden it out a little bit beyond writing, I think in my career in the past, you know, you may have difficulty sharing the work or even sharing your experience because you worry like, oh, this is not going to be perceived as like the, this is not the perfect image I want to put out there. I haven't fully considered like this part of me. And so do I want to go out and talk about it? And I think you know, learning that being authentic and sharing your mistakes and, you know, things you're still working on, that's a very important part about being, about connecting to other people and, you know, being a professional who, you know, you know, not every, like you said, you can't be perfect all the time. And what's most important is kind of how you grapple with, like, with who you actually are and how you present that. Yeah, I, I, that's that's what I've been learning is just how to be myself in different places um, and not have to worry about presenting a perfect perfect image all the time. So being a woman, a lot of times we find ourselves in situations which you feel would not have happened if you were a guy. Did you ever face such situations and what did you do in those situations? Yes, and I think it happens a lot uh, to lawyers, women lawyers, in particular, I just, I, I will, I'll never forget in, I had a deposition. Uh, the first thing I, I came into the deposition and they asked me whether I was the court reporter showing up for the deposition. And I'm like, no, no, I'm actually the lawyer. You know, I'm a lawyer representing, you know, and, and then the second part in a different deposition, um, the male attorney um, asked me to start putting up his de- his exhibits. So if you're not a lawyer, uh, it may be, it may be uh, you may not be able to under- understand that, but it's like when you're taking a deposition, you pull your own exhibits and you show those exhibits to the deponent. You don't typically rely on your opposing counsel to pull the documents for you. And this was all by Zoom. So, you know, both parties had access to all the documents on, on the computer. And so the, the opposing counsel asked me to start pulling documents for him. And I thought, you know, that, that he would not do that if the, I was a male associate or male partner on the other side. That just I just didn't think that he would do that. And um, in the first example where they thought I was a court reporter, I, I didn't say anything, um, but I just kind of noted it for myself. And in the second deposition, I thought, wow, this is this is pretty unusual. And I feel confident enough kind of saying something. So I ended up just saying on the record, you know, I'm not going to do this for you. I just need to put on the record that I don't think you would do this if I was a male associate. And the other, you know, the other lawyer got really upset and I think really embarrassed by that. 
you know, after the deposition, I concluded, I called him and, and I talked to him about it and what I thought, you know, was the problem. And, and, and I don't know if he was ever fully receptive about that. Um, but I, I think, you know, you have to kind of like figure out if it's something that you want to actually like call someone out on or say, you know, if you want to actually um, say something about it and it depends on the, on the circumstance. Yeah, that was, that was my experience. Thank you so much, Laura. This, this is such a great conversation. Any final closing comments for our listeners? Divi, I just wanted to thank you so much for, for what you're doing with the podcast. And um, I, if I could, I just wanted to call out two organizations that I've been working with um, that help that are helping students underrepresented in the law um, sort of um, find a path to law school. Um, the first is LEAP. It's called the Legal Education Access Pipeline. And um, they, we work with students, particularly in Los Angeles and uh, the Bay Area, connect to law school. The LEAP will uh, fund their um, LSAT prep courses and um, connect them with an advisor who can help them with their resume and personal statement, diversity statement. So um, that organization. And then there's also the Just the Beginning organization, which works with high school students um, and to, to kind of put in their minds this pathway to the law and what that might be like for them as they advance through college and law school. Um, I've been a mentor with both those groups and I very much believe in their missions. And um, if everyone, if anyone is interested in uh, getting involved, um, whether as a participant or a mentor, um, I'd, I'd encourage them to contact me. Thank you so much, Laura. Thanks for the resources. Always appreciated, you know, because there are so many people looking for these resources, as you mentioned early on, you know, and sometimes it's so hard to find. So absolutely. And we'll put it in the description of the podcast as well. So it's there as well. But thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Divya. It was a pleasure. Thank you.